This is an Odyssey original. This is Canine in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you've heard of superbug bacteria. Now there's a super fungus. We'll go in depth into a CDC warning about a fungus spreading in healthcare facilities. Google's new AI chatbot is ready for us, but are we ready for it? And Cirque du Soleil is uh, back in L.A. starting later this week. We'll go in-depth into the show with one of the performers. Uh, They're not going to hang from the chandeliers here, are they? We did uh, put some stuff in the ceiling. We'll see if they use it. Well, we don't have any chandeliers, so if they try to do that trick, that's not going to work. We have lawyers standing by for the lawsuits. Good. We start, though, with the super fungus spreading at healthcare facilities. With us is Dr. Peter Katona, infectious disease expert with UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us again. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, as I said in the uh, outset, uh, we've heard lots and lots in the past few years anyway about uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So what is this so-called super fungus? Well, it's been slowly growing for the last 15 or so years. It's becoming more and more prevalent. It, It doesn't have that massive contagiousness that COVID does, but it's been slowly growing in numbers. There's still very small numbers, but it's been growing and growing in numbers. And it, you know, and it affects people who are immune compromised, people that are old. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something to be worried about. How does this fungus attack the body? What does it do to it? Well, it can attack it in many ways. It could get into the blood. It can get into the lungs. Um, it's acquired through surfaces. COVID is acquired on the respiratory route. This is acquired in the contact route. It's, it clings to surfaces. It'll, you know, you put on a gown to prevent getting COVID and it'll stick to the gown that you just put on, for example. Is this something that one would uh, typically get in a uh, medical uh, hospital setting or a nursing home setting as opposed to going about one's daily life? No, this is a healthcare facility transmission issue. It's not something you're going to get just in the blue it, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna require good contact tra- transmission more than anything else you're not going to get it at home so how how is it in healthcare facilities where how did it get to uh, how did it get in there well how it got in i'm not sure i mean it's been slowly working its way in for a long time and um, um it just kind of gets attached to a surface you touch the surface you either get infected or you don't get infected and spread it to someone else. But the numbers are still very, very small. One of the theories I read this morning, and tell me what you think of, of this, was that that uh, perhaps the pandemic contributed to the spread of this fungus because uh, healthcare workers were so busy dealing with the deluge of COVID patients that perhaps they weren't being as meticulous as they should have been in terms of sterilizing things? Well, I think the sterilization process didn't wane. I think that was always there, but the attention was focused on COVID. So we didn't pay quite as much attention to this. We didn't control it with infection control measures as much as we probably could have if we paid more attention to it. So it's an indirect consequence of COVID, not a direct consequence. So what's the danger from this? If uh, if you get the fungus uh, inside you, uh, what symptoms do you have and, and can it cause death? Depends on what organ system it, it attacks. 
but it has a very high mortality once you become infected. Now, people who have normal immune systems are not going to get infected with this. They may be transmitters asymptomatically, but they're not going to get infected. It's the immune compromise that are going to have a, a third to a half more, you know, of cases mortality, very high. And the treatments for it are not particularly effective? There's a number of different drugs that are used to fight fungal infections. Uh, azoles, for example, are the most benign. This organism is resistant to virtually all of them. There's echinokinins, which are getting more and more resistant. And then after that, you get into much more toxic forms of therapy. So it's getting more and more resistant by the day. Do you know whether or not the pharmaceutical industry is is treating this with the urgency it, it seems to uh, deserve and, and trying to come up with other treatments? I don't know the answer to your question, but there isn't a huge market for them to be, you know, to be interested in this. There are very, very few cases. And with all the all that it takes to get a new drug onto market, I, I just don't see the pharmaceutical interest industry being interested in this. How, how many cases are we talking about? Do you know? Dozens. I mean, really very small numbers. It started in Asia about 16, about, I think about 16 years ago and started spreading. But we're talking about very small numbers compared to something like COVID. All right. Thank you very much. That's uh, Dr. Peter Katona. Right now, though, uh, Microsoft's chat GPT has a new rival. Google's Bard is now released to the public, though you'll have to join a wait list right now before chatting with this AI technology. Yasim Sadlin is a tech industry expert and CEO at Your Social Media Expert. Thanks for being with us. And thank you for having me. So, okay, uh, if you if you had a battle of uh, artificial intelligence and you pitted Google's Bard against Microsoft's ChatGPT, who'd win? Right now or in the future? No, right now. Who, who's going to win? Oh, right now it's, you know, ChatGPT is way further ahead. R much further ahead. Why? What, yes. makes, what makes it further ahead? Well, because, um, so ChatGPT is by Google AI, sorry, OpenAI, and they have been working on this technology for like three decades right now. Google has only been working on its AI tech since six years. Now, this uh, Google Bard, uh, you might recall back in July of last year, there was a software engineer named Blake Lemoyne. And uh, he claimed that uh, Google was working on a chatbot that was called at the time Lambda. And he claimed that it was sentient. And what made the story interesting was shortly after that, Google fired him. And uh, they say he violated data security policies. Is this uh, new Google Bard, is it related to Lambda? Is this an extension of that same program? Yes. So they literally renamed it into Bard. So it's the same. It's the same thing, just renamed. Exactly. Okay. So yes. so was was that uh, guy who was fired right? I mean, you know, is it a a thinking creature? Well, I would not know that. That only Google executives, senior executives, can tell you. Um, yeah, I, I I have no information about that. 
Well, it's just it made it kind of interesting because of the fact that Google so quickly took action against him after claiming that. Of course, that doesn't prove that he was right, uh, and, and nor does it prove whether he was sincere his beliefs that it was sentient. But at some point, you know, we're going to be having a very serious discussion about these uh, chatbots, whether or not they are sentient. Maybe not in the way humans are, but maybe in the way that machines can be sentient. And we will have to redefine what consciousness means. Right now, that's a philosophical question. How are we going to approach that? when it comes to something created, something technological, something that is an AI? Well, you are so spot on. And I don't know if you'd remember that when they had uh, done an interview with Elon Musk, like last year, he was, um, you know, it was all over the news that he was smoking pot during the interview. You know, he was offered it and he took it. And the reason was that he was really getting depressed while talking about it. And now I can totally understand why he feels this way, because um, AI, whether it's going to be ChatGPT or, you know, Google Bart, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of new versions like by Facebook and others, um, they will replace a lot of jobs. And although... Right now, they don't have a consciousness. Well, they have seen that people started already making queries with ChatGPT that are really for no good use. And you can, like, if that technology, if the ChatGPT technology will get into the wrong hands, people with bad intentions, and they really figure out how to talk to it, because right now, you know, the, the way you speak to ChatGPT, if you ask it simple queries, you'll get very simple things. But there is a way that you can really go a lot deeper with it, which people are starting to figure out, like even as marketers, we do. So if that technology is going to get into the wrong hands, then yes, a lot of dangerous things can really happen. And well, I believe yeah, this is completely my own opinion, but I believe this is also why Elon Musk left the whole project. If you know, you know, he left the whole OpenAI project and Microsoft has majority shares. So Elon is no longer involved. So right. that makes me very curious as well. So, so let's say this technology gets into the wrong hands. For example, my neighbor, uh, how would he change the way he does searches on Google, for example, because this AI is going to be part of it? So I can tell you how ChatGPT, the way it is right now, can be can mess up Google searches. So, um, you know, Google ranks the results in terms of certain keywords. So when you ask Google a question, you know, how would you do this? It's searching for specific keywords and it's looking for the accuracy of results. You know, it's looking how many websites have those keywords. So it's really looking for to give you a quality result. But right now, ChatGPT enables every single person to create tons of content, really like in just a few seconds. So imagine if you're 
neighbor is, you know, they, your neighbor wants to rank for a specific keyword. They can literally run ChatGPT on a computer overnight. And it's going to keep on producing all those articles, the blogs. Mm-hmm. And it's really going to mess up with Google's algorithm because Google is not yet equipped to, to notice everything that's been written with AI. All right. They have a lot of like, you know, things in place and they're really working very hard at it. But if somebody, you know, would, um, you know, imagine like in a data center, they have tons of computers, thousands of computers on, and they really want to attack a specific keyword. Right. Yes, they can completely mess up with Google's business, All which right. is why Google is really on a roll to, you know, roll out their to, own to version. come up with. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you seem Satan, tech industry expert and CEO at your social media expert. I guess we're going to have to take the computer away from my neighbor. <laughs> Coming up, Cirque du Soleil is back in L.A. We'll talk about all the work that goes into making the show happen and what it takes to perform in it. Right now, though, Gwyneth Paltrow is in court in Park City, Utah, for a civil trial. She's being sued for $300,000 by a man who says Paltrow collided with him and injured him badly while he was skiing at a resort in 2016. And with us to uh, talk about skiing safety is Jimmy Turret, snow and ski safety expert who's in Alaska uh, right now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So an accident like this is not just somebody bumping into somebody else on a ski slope because you can get going at a pretty good clip, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, skiing on groomers, on you know, groomed, prepared trails at resorts, people can easily be going anywhere from 20 to 50 miles an hour. So, yeah, uh, bad injuries like this can result from collisions with other people or trees or anything, really. Now, am I, am I right? Uh, the person who's going downhill obviously has would have right of way. But in this case, uh, my understanding is that both Gwyneth Paltrow and the uh, the gentleman that is suing her, they both claim that they had right of way. How could they both have right of way? Well, you know, without without going into any possible he said, she said, you know, type situations for, you know, to try and figure out what really happened. Right of way is kind of a, a a thing that's not just established by who the downhill skier is, and that's something that people often get confused about. The National Ski Area Association, of which Deer Valley, where this accident happened, as are most major resorts, has a responsibility code that uh, every skier and snowboarder needs to follow. And yes, indeed, it, it does say that the downhill skier has the right of way, but there's also uh, there's also bullet points in there. Um, saying, you know, that you've got to look before you merge into traffic, even if you are the downhill skier. Um, you know, and then there's other things like uh, keeping off closed trails and obey all signs, but looking uphill and avoiding others is one of the bullet points, too. Um, and really, the responsibility code is structured to kind of make it so everybody has to be an active participant in their own safety. So, you know, these things can be really tough to figure out exactly who is at fault because it's possible that they both could have been or neither of them, depending right. on which way you look at it. And not knowing the specific injuries, this uh, person claiming that he suffered a $300,000 lawsuit. It's not a small lawsuit. It's pretty big. But my question is mm-hmm. this, and this is not to impugn anybody because I don't know the details of the case. Uh, 
is Gwyneth Paltrow being sued because she's Gwyneth Paltrow and she's famous, she's a celebrity? Or if this happened between two people that nobody knew who they were, would the, would something like this turn into such a big lawsuit? Um, I, I would say that, you know, I mean, across the board, uh, there's a lot of lawsuits in the ski industry, uh, both people suing each other in these types of accidents, but also suing ski areas. So uh, I would say even if it had been somebody uh, that wasn't Gwyneth Paltrow, I wouldn't have been surprised to see a lawsuit ensue from it. Now, for, for people who are going uh, skiing this season, what's the dumbest mm-hmm. thing a skier could do that they shouldn't do? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. Uh, I would say the dumbest thing anyone could do is think that they're in a safe environment and kind of turn their situational awareness brain off. Um, you know, like I said earlier, like for to ski safely, you kind of um, need to be an active participant in it. And that's not just focusing on what's below you, but also focusing on what's behind you, because, you know, there's unaccounted for variables such as people coming down behind you that, you know, could could really wreck your day. So for people to stay safe out there, just pay attention and be situationally aware. I want you to know that when Charles asked that question, he looked directly at me. But I want to—I want to put your mind at rest. Saying I have never skied, I don't think I will at this point. <laughs> well, I tell you what, give me a call offline, and uh, I'll try—I'll—I'll I'll do what I can to try and make sure you make it through the weekend, okay? All right. Uh, thank you so much. That is uh, Jimmy Turd, a snow and ski safety expert who is in Alaska right now. When we come back, Cirque du, Cirque du Soleil is back that is a little bit of a tongue twister yes i have Uh, trouble getting that out of my mouth uh, circus of the sun yes yes Uh, there we go is back in town we'll chat with the performer to find out what it takes to be in a circ show you're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Cirque du Soleil has been tantalizing people for decades now. There are shows of whim and fantasy. Yeah, actually, I've seen a number of them over the years, going back actually quite some time. And, and what I'm going to get into is what makes a Cirque show a Cirque show. The shows are fixtures, by the way, in Las Vegas, but they are also traveling versions. One is right here in Los Angeles for several weeks. It starts Thursday. It's called Curtail. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to perform in a Cirque show, you'll get to find out right now. Well, not you're not going to actually find out what it's like. But, <laughs> Without doing it. <laughs> but you'll get, it, you'll get an idea. With us is Mike Newquist, who is president of the Touring Shows Division of Cirque, and Erwin Cervantes, who is a performer in Corteo. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank Pleasure you. to be here. Mike, let, let me start off with that question. What is it that makes a Cirque show a Cirque show? Well, I think when you you think about a Cirque show, you think creative and seeing something that you've never seen before. And to me, that's you see these unbelievable acrobats doing things that um, you never imagined could be done before. And then to see act after act after act, um, it's just it's mind blowing to me when when you think of the creative nature of of what a Cirque show is. So to me. Uh, as I look out in the audience and I see not only the laughs, but the jaws drop um, because of what they're seeing. They're just amazed by by what a Cirque show, what a Cirque show is. So it's it's just to me the most amazing way you can spend uh, two hours. And we have one of the uh, performers uh, here with us, uh, 
uh, Aaron or Cervantes uh, performs in the show or Corteo. Tell us a little bit about what you do and what what do you call it a move, a trick, a stunt. What do you call it? And and describe some of those for us and what you have to train yourself to do to be able to accomplish them. Uh, well, thank you for having me, first of all. And uh, I am an aerialist in the show, and I perform an act called Lust, which is uh, three gigantic chandeliers. There are four women in my act, so there's four women performing on three different chandeliers. Um, and we go up and down, fly around, hang by our feet, head, everything. <laughs> we, 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 we tried to bring a chandelier in here. Yeah. But it was, yeah. <laughs> a little big. You don't want to hang no from room. this ceiling. It'll come right down on you. The track lighting may not look safe. My, this, this, this particular show, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, it begins with, uh, it's actually a funeral, isn't it? Which doesn't sound like an evening of merriment but but it but it is in a way but it is i like to call it more of a festive parade okay. than than a funeral and yes it's it's you go into the uh, imagination of of this lead clown and it takes you through um different instances it's just this it's a it's a joyous festive uh not what you would think at all if you hear a funeral it's it's the whimsical it's the it's the dreamlike version of of what's going on in inside his head. So uh, to me, it's just, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, show. And uh, Aaron, I, I, I would assume to be able to do this, to have a talent at doing this, you have to start training uh, kind of young. Not Somebody like me, I'm not going to get into it <laughs> tomorrow, right? Um, even though I think I would be good at it because of what I do here behind the board at KNX when I'm looking at one, two, three, four screens and pushing this button, turning that thing down. So I think I'm pretty talented. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to see you swing from a chandelier, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> you would only see it once yeah, okay. and then never again. But um, if, if there's a young person out there who's thinking about i'd like to do something like be an aerialist mm -hmm. uh how young do you have to be to begin to be good at it what kind of talents do you need to know that you can be good at it i have a bit of a different story i started when i was little i wanted to be an actress it was my goal 100 percent wanted to be an actress uh, i was a dancer a little bit but never had the big passion for it and i actually uh, when i moved to los angeles in 2002 I was just kind of uh, going from audition to audition, trying to be an actress, trying to figure it out. And a friend of mine said, why don't you come to the circus school with me and just t for a workout, something fun, different. Okay, that's weird, but okay. <laughs> so uh, I went to the, the circus school, Circus School Los Angeles in Hollywood, and just for fun. And, just, and at this point, I was 30. 30 years old. <laughs> wow, okay. So I, I, yeah, I had no uh, visions of trying to make this a career. It was just, uh, you know, living in L.A., 29, 30 years old, and wandered into the school and realized I had no muscles very quickly. And uh, just really, I think anybody that wants to do this, like anything, to become su successful at anything, I think you just need to really have the passion, the drive, and the perseverance for it. And the patience, because it takes a long time to gain the skills like this. And uh, it's nice to have a little bit of flexibility or knowledge of body movement. Uh, also helps. Well, but, I'm out. Uh, yeah, so I don't know <laughs> about too. sitting in the chair. If it... <laughs> I'm good at that. I'm good at the sitting in the chair. But, yeah. Mike, uh, actually, let me back up a little bit. Uh, so I mentioned that it's at the Microsoft Theater. Uh, are there tickets available? And what's the best way for people to get them? 
Tickets are available, and the best place to go is com slash Corteo. Uh, tickets are available. We have uh, group seats. We have individual seats and uh, plenty of good seats available. So we will we will be in town March 23rd until April 30th. You were saying during the break uh, that you have a story about when Cirque was, I guess, first uh, coming to Los Angeles or establishing itself as a presence in L.A. What, what is that story? That's right. So if I could take you back to 1987... So oh, I wish. Right? I wish. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So Cirque was only performing in Canada. So Los Angeles was going to be the first international event. And the company, um, you know, was in its early days still and came out, brought the full tour out here to Los Angeles, only had enough money to get out to Los Angeles. This mm-hmm. had to be a, su- a success. And because they didn't have money to get the trucks to get the performers back to Montreal. We only had enough money to get to Los Angeles. So fortunately, it was a huge success. Here we are 30 years later, but the company really bet its future on Los Angeles. And from that point in LA is when it became this big, huge, beloved brand and started touring the world. But the bet was on LA and only had the money to get here. So it, it had wow. to be a success, and it was. So, Aaron, uh, some of the performers do come out of the world of the Olympics because some of the some of the talents that you have to have to perform in the show uh, would seem to lend itself like, say, parallel bars, for example. Yes, there's a few people, a handful of people, actually, on the show that went to the Olympics. And we have some tumblers, some trampoline artists that were grand champions, world champions, um, people that did high bar, because we do have a high bar act at the end of the show. And a lot of those guys did uh, very high-level gymnastics, including the Olympics. I'm curious, and either one of you can answer this. Uh, do you still have people who come to the shows not knowing what to expect, and they wonder, well, this doesn't seem like a like a circus. <laughs> uh, Where are the elephants? Yeah, because I, I remember seeing it for the very first time in New York City, Uh also way back in the probably late 80s, early 90s, and not knowing that much about it. And I had that thought. I thought, well, this is a, this is a kind of weird circus. Does that still happen, or do people pretty much know now what to expect? I think for me, a lot of, a lot of people do know by now, but you still, we're still introducing new audiences, and, and that's what I love when you see families come out or dates come out, and, and one of the two have never seen it. We hear them in, in talking about it as they, as they walk out saying, I never knew how amazing that was. I, I was just blown away. So I continue to hear those type of comments every night. So while I do think the brand is so well-known and so beloved, we're still introducing new audiences that that haven't seen it and with each new show. So uh, I love it. I love as we we walk out at the end of the show and you continue to hear that and just that amazement in their voice still. All right, so I get a crick in my neck. So if I go to the show, (laughs) I'm either looking up a lot or is it up high or or depending on how the audience uh, seats are, uh, what kind of neck situation are we talking about here? Well, there's people in the air, there's people on the ground, yeah. on the sides, All in the over. back, okay. in the front. Yeah, and I think anywhere you look, you're going to see some action. So, Rob, you're going to leave being sore. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if, yeah. If that's what you're worried about. Yeah. It, 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 how dangerous are the stunts? 
Um, uh, for me, uh, when I'm you know, 20, 30 feet in the air hanging by one foot or hanging from my head. People often ask me if we have a net or a safety line or something attaching us to our apparatus, and we do not. You don't? So, no, mostly uh, there's one act that uses a net underneath because they do full release, so they let go of the hands and people fly through the air from side to side. Very dangerous. Mm. Um, for us, we just have our hands. But, but I'm curious, <laughs> when, when, when you first started this, did you, at, at any point, did it go through your mind, what did I get myself into? <laughs> I think the first time I went really high in the air, I thought, what am I doing with my life choices? Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would seem to be very frightening, and it also motivates you to be very good at it if you know you don't have a net underneath you. Absolutely. And if you mess up, <laughs> you're messed That's up. That's the only time you're going <laughs> to did, Mike, did, did the... Uh, the pandemic, uh, it, I know it, it sort of screwed up so many businesses. Uh, it must have had a huge impact on Cirque. And have you recovered from it pretty much? Yeah. I mean, you talk about decimating a company. And in the live event industry, we went from, you know, the high of highs to the ultimate lows. And all of a sudden, you're you're bringing every show uh, off off of tour. And, and, and all of a sudden, you're you're sitting there at zero revenue. Uh, we we couldn't do events, so you know for the next year year and a half, you know was all about rebuilding the company, and you know we started in in Las Vegas in the summer of twenty one, bringing back shows. Uh, November of twenty one is when we brought our first touring show back, mm. and then throughout twenty two, we gradually once a month launched a new tour until we had eight tours out at the same time. And now next month, we're launching a brand new show in Montreal, Echo, that will be our ninth touring show. So at this point, we um, we are back to where we were. All of the shows are up and, and fully running again, but it took a while. And we're seeing phenomenal response to the shows uh, following that. A, a quick question, because I'm curious. You're all over the world. Is it, It's not one company, or is it, that goes traveling, or do you have multiple companies that are doing it simultaneously? Yeah, so we have multiple. We'll ha we have eight completely different shows uh, that are out around the world right now. So, so each show may have 120-ish different people, uh, like Corteo here, and then we have... Uh, a different show that's and different company and cast members that are with with each one of those tours. So all, right. all completely separate. The show is called Corteo. It's going to be at the Microsoft Theater in L.A. beginning on Thursday. We had uh, Aaron Cervantes and uh, Mike Newquist with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good luck. Don't fall because <laughs> there's no nets under there. Exactly. And that's going to do it for. Uh, well, we do the show without a net. Charles, sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. we fall. Yes, so sometimes we fall. So Fortunately, we don't hurt ourselves, but no, you know. No. Uh, so that's it for KNS and Def for today. We'll be back uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m.